Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest in on my podcast is in my home. He's actually flown from Baltimore where he lives to be on the podcast is my friend Kareem Lazarus. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Will you tell our listeners how to spell your name? It's K-A-R-I-M-L-A-Z-A-R-U-S. And um, Kareem has been listening to the podcast and reached out to me. And um, let me just give you an overview. This is a podcast that should be four hours, and we're going to do our best to put it in an hour. And we both prayed that we can do that. Um, This is a podcast. um, Kareem's 50 years old. Um, He's a convert of the church. He's gay. He's been out of the church following his mission for about 15 years, but in the last year or two has returned to the church and full activity. And so we're going to talk about this journey of his. We're going to talk the first segment of the podcast, maybe the first 30 minutes is um, all the time from growing up in a home without a father, moving around um, to then finding the church, to then deciding to serve a mission in France. Um, trying to figure out if he's gay or just um, a survival of sexual abuse, Um, then um, going on a mission to France and then coming home and eventually stepping away from the church. That'll be the first segment. The second segment will be um, roughly from 2003 to 2019, a period of time where Kareem was out of the church, um, was in a same-sex relationship, maybe a couple Um, And just talk about that time out of the church and why he was still connected to the church, even though he wasn't actively participating. And then he'll talk in the last segment about what had led him to come back to the church, where he is now, and kind of this long view at 50, what he'd say to his younger self, which is kind of Kareem talking to you. Some of you that, you know, Kareem's been walking a road without many people sort of helping him along as he's been dealing, especially in the first segment with some of the things that came into his life. So I'm our prayers that some of the things that Kareem shares with you will be unique because his story is so unique. He didn't grow up in the Intermountain area. He's not um, third generation LDS. It's a unique story, has a strong time in the military, which is part of his story. And so is that okay for an introduction? Sounds good. So take us back to just um, wherever you want to start, just your story. Well, probably the thing that I think is most unique is that my mother was of Scandinavian ancestry and my father is of Lebanese and Jamaican. Um, so quite a quite a pair. Uh, my father was actually a Rastafarian, still is. Um, I remember those Rastafarians from England on my mission. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was at on my mission, oddly enough, I met a lot of uh, Nigerian immigrants in France that saw my my name plaque and said, Lazarus, we listen to a musician in in Nigeria. And it turned out that my father was big in Nigeria back in the day. So wow. that was interesting. But um, yeah, my parents divorced when I was six months old and we moved from Jamaica to Florida, uh, which is where sort of I started. Um, so... I born in Jamaica, moved to Florida, uh, had a, was an outgoing bubbly kid. Um, we lived with my mother, with my brother and I, uh, lived with my grandmother, um, in Florida. And then about the time that I was five, we moved, my mom moved to Illinois with my brother and I, and we were there until about 10 when we moved to South Carolina. And I went through high school there in South Carolina, although the last 
um, three years of high school I spent at a military high school in Virginia. And then I ended up going to the Air Force Academy, which is where I actually uh, joined the church. Uh, and a year later, started my mission in France. The Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs. Colorado right? Springs, yep. That's as far close to Salt Lake City you've ever lived in your life. Yes, yes. Although after the mission, I came here often. Okay. Um, the skiing is better in Colorado. One of the things that Kareem's willing to talk about is he's a survivor of sexual abuse. And um, in the book, I talk about, you know, does that experience being a victim or survivor of sexual abuse change your sexual orientation? Um, and you were having, you had several incidents where you were a victim or a survivor of sexual abuse. And and that was obviously really confusing to you. And you didn't talk to anybody about that, but just kind of if whatever you want to share about that, because I think it may be helpful for listeners that are likewise um, survivors of sexual abuse or even in a situation right now that they don't know how to navigate. Right. So the question always comes up, um, when did I first know that I was gay? And in, in hindsight, I think I knew at four years old, which seems really early. Um, but I remember my grandmother at the apartment complex that she owned, she had a guest there. And at four years old, I... I can to this day tell you his name, his wife's name, their daughter's name, where they lived, um, what his profession was. I just had this affinity towards him. And I remember he took me out on a, on a windsurfer and I, it was, it was just bliss. But I think in, in retrospect, I look back at it and, and it was infatuation. Um, um, and so that was sort of the, the first signs in, in my recollection. But when I was about Eight, we were living in Illinois, and I was walking home through a park from school. Uh, my mom worked, single mom, so she was working as a secretary at a realtor office. And I was walking home through this park, and I had this big brass belt buckle with a trout on it that I was proud of. And this guy stopped me, and uh, actually, I go back. I have to step back because. A year earlier, the very first thing, I was sitting in my yard playing by myself, and this person walking down the alley grabbed me and pulled me into our garage and molested me. And, um, you know, at seven years old, you don't know what happened. It just, it didn't feel right. It was scary. Um, I, I can still remember the sunbeams through the dust in the garage and the smell of the gasoline from the lawnmower. I mean, vivid recollections of this. But for some reason, I never said anything to my mom or my brother. Um, and so a year later, I'm walking home through the park and this same person, who I don't think remembered me, um, stops me and tries to get my my belt buckle. And fortunately, a, a patrol officer was driving by and saw the little scuffle, uh, flipped his siren on, the guy ran. I got in the squad car. We chased the guy, caught him. And uh, subsequently, we went to the police station, and I had to sit there across the, the hallway from this guy in a cell uh, looking at me, me looking at him, waiting for his mother to be uh, called to the station and picked up. And then the police officer drove me to my mom's place of employment, walked me in, and at the front desk sort of announced to the to the room, Miss Lazarus, your son has been molested. Wow. And um, clearly all the secretaries just sort of like, <gasps> um, and then he explained that I was fine, nothing had happened. Um, 
And so my mom said, okay, go, go watch some TV while I finish work. And then we walked home and never discussed it. And I don't know why we never discussed it, but uh, I guess because nothing had happened. But I felt tremendous relief because I think at the time I, I knew what had happened a year earlier and I thought, uh-oh, now, now she's going to find out. And I think I always sort of looked out for my mom when she was a single mom struggling to, to you know, take care of two kids. Um, I felt it was my job to make sure that her life was as easy as I could make it. Um, so that was tough. Um, and then we moved from, from Illinois to South Carolina, where I was one of very few kids on this resort island that people retired to to play golf. And there was really only one other kid my age. The rest were probably three, four years older than me, which is my brother is three years older. And so I, was, I became friends with this uh, kid. And his, I remember his father drove a red Ferrari, which I thought was the coolest thing on earth. And he would drive me around in the Ferrari and he'd let me sit on his lap and steer the car and he'd take us fishing and we could, we would go camping in the backyard and ha have sleepovers. Um, and one day, uh, my friend and I found a stash of Playboy magazines in the bathroom. And as boys would do, we just sort of started leaving through it and giggling and the father caught us and we were scared to death. We thought, uh, you know, hide it, act like we were doing something else. And, and he just sort of reassured us, oh, that's fine. It's natural. Everything is good. And that slowly evolved into him uh, sitting there masturbating himself and, and mutual masturbation. And at this time, I was 11 years old, sort of knew it was wrong, sort of liked it because it felt good and it felt like love and, and um, and attention that I didn't have at home. My mom had remarried when I was 10 and to a man that was 50 or 20 years older than her. His youngest daughter was two years younger than my mother. So he had sort of raised his kids and, and he was just going to provide food and clothing and education for us. And so I didn't really have a father figure there, which is interesting because a lot of people speculate, you know, is it the single mother and the, the children without without father figures and he was raised by his mother and his grandmother, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, I don't think that's the case. It's just coincidence that that's what happened. And, um, at about 12, this was continuing and I was getting to that point, starting to realize what it was and that it was wrong, but I still don't think it, I recognized it as a crime or, um, or anything. Um, but I started to resist and say, I don't want to do this anymore. And he, he didn't force anything. He was, he's like, okay, well, we don't have to, but you can't tell anyone ever. Um, and, uh, he's sort of like, you know, we'll all be in trouble and you'll be in trouble. And so I didn't tell anyone. And within weeks of my sort of letting him know that I didn't want to do this anymore, he and his son packed their bags and moved wow. uh, ne never to be seen again. And for me, that was a tremendous sense of relief. Um, but it also sort of allowed me to sort of close in and keep that secret and the other secrets. Um, and so that started to affect my, my academics. I was just, I felt like a loner. I felt, uh, different than everyone else. Um, we had moved from poverty to this sort of resort golf lifestyle in South Carolina where everyone 
wore fancy clothes and drove fancy cars. And so I was this little tan kid um, with a funny name and didn't really fit in into blue-blooded Charleston, South Carolina. So uh, I started started to struggle, and I, I was my only friend at that point. Um, but I did traditional, like, boy things. I loved to skateboard and surf and fish and play in the dirt and dig worms. And um, But I also liked to do cartwheels in the yard. And um, I had a cousin that had moved down to South Carolina, and she and I would just run around and doing cartwheels and gymnastics and such. And I remember um, when I finally came out to my mother years later, she said, your aunt told me you were gay when you were eight years old. Wow. And that was not something I wanted to hear. That really stressed me out. But but I was a happy kid um, that sort of had this experience. And then it sort of, I didn't know how to respond to it. So I started, started to withdraw. And it was affecting my uh, schoolwork to the point where the school asked me at the end of my um, ninth grade, I, I, I failed that year and repeated it. And at the end of the second year, they're like, even though he passed, we just think this is not a good environment for him. So we need to ask him to leave. And so I was going to be sent to a, a day school in, in Charleston, a Catholic day school. And I didn't like the plaid uniform. So I begged my mom to send me to military high school. And ultimately, circumstances uh, such as they were, I ended up going to military high school in Virginia, which in hindsight makes me wonder how that worked out because an all-boys boarding school, um, it it was, I thrived there. It was great. Um, very small community, about 500 cadets. Um, the faculty were like parents. And, and so for the first time, I really had sort of father figures, if you will mentors. Um, and I started to thrive there. I was into athletics, uh, swimming and diving, um, did really well academically. I was on the, the rifle drill team, um, varsity team captain. So, I mean, I really, I just, and every, all that stuff in my past sort of disappeared and, and was out of, out of sight, out of mind. Um, I remember there were rumors back in military high school that if you got caught masturbating, they were going to make you wear a white glove and everyone would know. And I actually believed that and was scared to death about that. So I never masturbated throughout high school. And um, in hindsight, I know everybody was, but that was sort of a traumatic thing for me because I was like, I can't do that. Um, and then I went off to college. Um, my parents were traveling in a motorhome for the last three years of high school. And whenever we had a spring break or summer, I would fly out to wherever they were. And between my junior and senior year, I uh, flew out to Phoenix and back to school at the end of the summer from Washington. But we spent a few weeks camping in East Canyon outside of Salt Lake. And my mom and I drove in, did the Temple Square tour. And I remember getting uh, a sister missionary gave me the paperback blue uh, Book of Mormon. And back then they would photograph there was a photo of a member with their testimony underneath it and there was this handsome gentleman that is i was like wow i want to be this guy um but traveling in a motorhome for a you know 16 17 year old is sort of boring so i sat in the back of the camper while we drove through you know the grasslands and i read the book of mormon um and i didn't think too much of it um I went again, I flew back to 
my senior year in military high school and in the military, uh, in, in the middle of nowhere, you can imagine there's not much to do. So I read it again my senior year in high school, and then I went off to the Air Force Academy, which kept me busy my freshman year. It was a tough first year. And at the end of that year, we start what's called survival, evasion, resistance, escape training. So it's this formal military training pipeline. And I remember walking into my room one day after lunch, and my roommate had a Book of Mormon on his desk. So when he came back from lunch, I said, I've read that book. He says, are you Mormon? I said, no. And he said, do you want to come to church? And I said, sure. And a month later, on 9 September 1990, I was baptized. A month later. A month later. Now, throughout all of this time, I sort of, I went to, at, at high school, I, we had to, it was a Southern Baptist high school. We had to go to religious classes on Tuesday, Thursday, and we attended church Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. And at the end of the uh, time there, um, the award ceremony, they announced that I won the uh, Religious Studies Award for highest uh, GPA in, in religious classes throughout my time there. Wasn't expecting it, but obviously I, I sort of had this draw towards things spiritual, and I've, I've told people this before. I, I don't think I knew to pray per se, but I had this just, even to this day, I think I have this ongoing dialogue with Heavenly Father. Um, if I'm sitting there in a quiet moment anywhere, could be the grocery store, could be the car, um, I'm usually <laughs> having some sort of dialogue. And at the time, I thought I was probably just talking to myself, but I realized now I wasn't. Um, so having read the Book of Mormon twice before meeting um, the missionaries... They were probably stunned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew. I think I knew some of the Book of Mormon stories more than, than one, of the, one of the elders. But, um, you know, they kept saying, do you have any questions? And I was like, no, I actually believe that. Because um, it just made sense to me. Everything about the missionary discussions made sense to me. Um, you know, the parts, families can be together forever. That was new. That was not something that I had heard before. I was like, well, that makes sense. So, um, no, I joined the church uh, full bore. At this time, I think relative to the um, my sexuality and the abuse, though, I think I was sort of, the abuse I had sort of put behind me. I think military high school was such a fostering good environment for me where I thrived and and just forgot about it. I, I lost myself in that uh, in trying to get in the academy that I, I forgot about it. And it didn't, it didn't haunt me. Um, and my first year at the academy was just too stressful to think about anything. So then I, uh, I'm a new member and I meet this great group of return missionaries that have come back from missions and are, are juniors and all of my classmates are preparing to go on their missions and I'm left with this question am I going to go on a mission at the academy is if you start your junior year, you're committed, you can't leave. And so the only time I was going to have to go on a mission was going to be if I chose within that year. So choosing to go on a mission after only being a member for one year was a little intimidating. Wow. Um, but I certainly had a testimony and I uh, loved the gospel and I wanted to share it. And I think in honest tea, it was sort of like, this will be fun. Um, and then I started to ask myself the question, um, you know, I, I knew about my past and I, and I worried 
can I go on a mission? But I was too scared to ask or talk to anyone about it. And I convinced myself that um, through sincere repentance and baptism, that was in my past. So I was, I was, I had a clean slate. I was okay to go on a mission. And I've since beat myself up over that. Um, probably wrong, but I, I have that maybe I shouldn't have, but I'm glad I did. And I got out in the mission field and it was terrifying. I was with missionaries that had been lifelong members that knew everything that had scripture mastery down. And um, I felt very inadequate, which reminded me very much of my, you know, elementary and, and junior middle school days. So um, that's never a good recipe to start to doubt yourself. And, and so I had anxiety and some depression there. But I was surrounded by some really, really good missionaries. Um, I've often heard on your podcast people talk about did they have crushes or were they worried about having crushes on missionary companions? And it's funny because I think when you're out there doing the Lord's work, uh, like my freshman year at the academy, you're just too busy to think about it. And it just doesn't happen. But I had one missionary companion that I just loved him. And I loved him in a Christ-like way, but then I started to think to myself, do I also love him in, in, in a carnal way? I mean, he was handsome, he was, but I, I rationalized, I just, I just want to be him. I love him and I want to be him. I mean, I want to be as smart in the gospel and as spiritual and be able to say prayers like him. Um, and ultimately, one day... I found myself um, alone and I masturbated. And I hadn't done that in a long time. And it scared me. I thought immediately, my mission's over. The Lord hates me. If anybody knew this, I would... I would just die. I, I'd get I can't go. I'm going to get kicked off of my mission. I can't go back to the military. It's going to be awful. And so I went and I, wow. I, I contacted. I didn't think of the, all the, the logic flow that's going through here. The mission yeah. I get yeah. that you fear there, but I didn't understand that it could affect the military. And you were so far down that road and I was accomplished so much. Yeah. I, I could lose the military. I could lose the church. I could lose my family. And so I, out of desperation, I went and I called my mission president, who was uh, then President Neil L. Anderson. Um, and he was great. He had me come to Bordeaux, and we met. And I explained everything to him about that occurrence, but I never divulged anything else about my past, and he really didn't ask much about any of that. Um, but he, he offered to bring me to the mission office to be closer to him, um, that I could work through things. And so at that point, I went to the mission office. And four months later, he, he was left the mission. Um, and so we had a new mission president, Elder uh, or President Ovison, who came in and he was he was great. He was prior Air Force, had taught at the academy. So it was sort of, he knew my situation. And that was really helpful in uh, later on when he um, let me go and get medical screenings and things I needed before I could go back to the academy. 
Um, so I finished my mission up and returned to the academy and had such a great reuniting with all of my former classmates and stuff that were all coming back from their missions. And it was great. And, um, but it was also very sad because I, I, in the end, I loved my mission to this day. It's the best two years of my life. That's so cliche, but it, it really was. And I missed it desperately. And I sort of felt lost without it. And oddly enough, um, I think I told you before, I, was, I used to dive in high school. And I was playing around on the diving boards at the Air Force Academy. And this guy comes up to me and says, are you a diver? I said, I used to be four years ago. And he said, well, uh, I'm the new diving coach. And he was the former BYU diving coach and uh, had been excommunicated and was now at the Air Force Academy. And I thought, there's my new mission. And so I started going to church with him and his wife and, uh, and son uh, at the local family ward. And that sort of set me up at odds with my singles branch president there at the academy. And so that was sort of the the start of my falling away from the church. Um, he made it explicitly clear that I had to pay my tithing at the branch. And I said, well, I can bring my envelope to the branch, but I want to go to the family ward. And I explained why. And he said, nope, you have to be at the singles ward with all of your peers. This is where you all belong. And uh, I just, I didn't want to give up the opportunity to, sort of serve my, my diving coach. And so I, I didn't, I kept going to the, uh, family ward and he, he basically told me then you're not getting a temple recommend. So within six months of being back from my mission, I had lost my temple recommend never to get it back again until recently. And that was really hurtful. And I, and I have to admit, I got angry. Um, during this time, uh, this was back in the early nineties, the internet was just sort of starting and there were these things called bulletin boards. And somehow I discovered a bulletin board where at, I think it was out of the university of Iowa. And, um, there were these anonymous groups that would get together and chat and leave messages. And I found one about gay people. And it sort of started to bring things back up in my mind. And so it was sort of a release to be able to share thoughts with people that had similar feelings, um, but in, a, in what I believed was a safe environment. Um, and that, again, sort of started this, this conflict with, with the gospel. And um, so that was scary. I ultimately decided to, there, there was a guy on the bulletin board that I figured out just through the dialogue. Clearly he's also an Air Force Academy cadet. So we decided to meet one night just to sort of see one another and be able to have some solidarity. You know, I think we all sort of need to feel some sense of belonging. And I was sort of starting to lose my tribe within the church because I wasn't going with the other cadets. I wasn't at peace with the, with the um, branch president. Um, so I needed someone. And so one night we were going to meet and I wandered uh, out on the campus uh, in the dark and I saw him from a distance and I got scared and I fled. Uh, and then I was, again, I had one of those moments where, oh no, 
somebody knows me, I'm going to get kicked out of the academy. I'll get kicked out of the church. It was terrifying. Um, and at one point, he and uh, one of my instructors, who turned out to be gay, confronted me in the gymnasium. And I said, you guys are mistaken. I've been mistaken. This is not happening. Uh, you need to leave me alone or I'll report you. So they left me alone and never saw it again. But I was scared to death. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we graduated. And I. it was a luxury to be able to move because I would have an, a clean slate, a new opportunity. I went to Pensacola, Florida, joined a local ward. There was another LDS uh, um, flight student there with me. Uh, we we had great camaraderie. Eight weeks later, I moved again to Corpus Christi, Texas. Six months later, I moved to Meridian, Mississippi. And each of these moves gave me an opportunity to sort of come into a new ward, feel the love without having any sort of pressure. But every time I got somewhere, they'd be like, we need you to be the second counselor in the Young Men's Presidency, and we need you to be a scoutmaster. And Satan really sort of started to come at me because he would he would put thoughts in my mind like, if they knew what's happened to you, they wouldn't want you around their children. And that's a horrible thing to think about. So then I would, I would have found a new ward, I would feel welcome and loved, and then I would panic and, and go into inactivity until the next move. And that pattern sort of followed me until I got to Annapolis, Maryland, where I'm now in my, I'm 30 years old. I, uh, I'm sort of starting to realize and, and recognize the, that I'm gay. Um, I don't think up until that point I had not put, I hadn't, hadn't put my finger on it. I was like, I know that I'm different. I know I've had experiences that are bad. I know I've done things that are, would get me kicked out of the church. I was convinced of that. And I, and in hindsight, I don't think I had at that point. I agree. But in my mind, I was desperately afraid that I would be, and and also that I would lose the military. Um, so I, in in the Annapolis area, if you're not a midshipman or an ensign, um, you're the odd ball out. Um, all the girls are trying to date you, and and your your peers are trying to set you up on dates, and I was just. I had had enough. I couldn't. I couldn't fake it anymore. So I moved to Baltimore City, where everyone's afraid of Baltimore: crime, drugs. Um, none of my friends would dare go into the city, and that gave me space to sort of um, think about and figure out myself. And I befriended some people who uh, were gay, and I started helping them do a farmhouse restoration. And it was as innocuous as that. Um, but I, I found this sphere of people over the internet and uh, started hanging out with them. And through that experience, I started to find a new tribe that was sort of welcoming. And at that point, which was around 2001 timeframe, I stopped going to church altogether. And it's, it's hard to think about what led to that because I always had a testimony. I still had a testimony. Um, and, and as people would ask me about myself, they would quickly find out that I was LDS and 
they were like, what are you thinking? Are you still LDS? And I was, I was like, absolutely. Um, I didn't make, I didn't join the church out of just, you know, a knee jerk reaction. It was a very conscious uh, choice. And so I was happy to, to share that with them, but nobody wanted to hear it. And over, over time, the church positions on, you know, I remember on my mission reading um, lots of texts about and, and hearing lots of talks at general conference about homosexuality and how it's an abomination. And um, unless you're married and, and have a family, you can't be, you can't be exalted. And um, all these things sort of just made me feel like I had no place in the church um, as, as a body. And yet I had a testimony of the doctrine of the church. And so I sort of, I sort of created this dichotomy. There's, there's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then there's, there's the humans that mess it up. And so I said, I'm just going to sort of stick with the gospel and focus on that. And I remember praying at one point, um, and Heavenly Father gave me a, I think a lot of times we, we want really clear and concise answers. And it's very rare that we get those. But on this one occasion, I got a very concise answer. And it was, you are who you are for a reason. And you're exactly who you're supposed to be. And um, I made you who you are. And it's okay to be who you are. And I didn't ever ask, do I have to go to church or can I leave church? I just sort of had this sense about me um, that I was okay. And it was the first time in a very long time that I felt like I was okay. Um, and that the Lord was on my side, despite whether other people were on my side or felt like they were on my side. And so with that, it gave me sort of this sense that I can... I can venture away, and the Lord will still be with, with me. I never stopped feeling the Spirit. I never stopped praying. I think I stopped doing my more my formal like morning and nighttime prayers, um, but I always had that dialogue going on still, and I think that is what really um, kept me grounded um, throughout all of it. Now, at that point, I sort of started living this openly gay lifestyle. There's the social aspect, which I think is key. Uh, a lot of times people talk about having being a part of a tribe, and I desperately needed a tribe. Um, and so that's what the gay community gave me. Um, and, it, and it just feels good to feel recognized and to feel accepted and to feel um, loved and important and needed. And so... Um, that became my life. Uh, you know, and I'm still working uh, with the military and I still have a, a, a career in government and, and all is well in the world now. I don't have this weight of, of fear and anxiety about the church on me. And so I sort of started to thrive and do, I was doing well at work and, and everything. I, I had a couple relationships over the years um, that were rewarding and enjoyable. Um, I started breaking the the word of wisdom, which I, that was a big, that was a big one for me because that was the first time I really made a choice. I was like, I'm going to do something that, well, 
there was a, a conscious choice to, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to break it. Um, the law of chastity just sort of was an organic piece of falling in love with someone. Um, and it wasn't really, I never like sat down and thought about, okay, do I break the law of chastity? But I actually had that sort of thought with the word of wisdom, which I regret. But, you know, drinking and the social aspect of it and and just sort of enjoying a, an openly gay lifestyle. Um, and when I got out of the military in 2005, that sort of further in, enabled that. Who knew that within a couple years, um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell would go away. Um, but 2018, I met another guy um, who turned out to be the love of my life. It was a tremendously rewarding relationship. Um, and probably the first time in my life that I felt unconditional love, um, that I was able to share everything about me with him um, and he, me. And I don't think people recognize the importance of just that connection. Um, to sit there on a sofa and watch a movie and just touch. Um, to feel a, a good, genuine embrace. Um, my friends, we talk about the straight man's hug. It's, I'm not gay. It's a three-pat, I'm not gay, with their, their hips all pointed outward because you, you can't touch. And uh, I love the gay community because they just embrace. Everyone embrace, embraces. Um, but, uh, yeah, with this, with this uh, gentleman and I, it was a great relationship. It's over. It lasted for just under two years. But from that relationship, I learned so much about um, acceptance and unconditional love. And for the first time it was tangible you know we talk about the unconditional love of heavenly father um but sometimes it's hard to feel that and and this was just sort of there and thereafter um not long thereafter covid hit and quarantines hit and i had months and months and months to sit there and do nothing but think about things and through the miracle of Facebook and, and the connections we make there. I had a, um, it wasn't a former companion, but a former roommate in one of my, um, apartments in the mission field whose son was serving a service mission. And I just remember this kid who's in, who's handicapped in a wheelchair has had 17 plus surgeries in his life. And he was willing to go out and serve a mission and I remember looking at that and thinking to myself, what's my excuse? Um, you have a testimony. You've never lost your testimony. Uh, you need to come back. And so I didn't immediately come back, but that sort of started me on this mindset of thinking about it and thinking. And, and I started surfing the internet, trying to figure out what, what is the church's stance on things now. I had heard through the internet about the family proclamation, and I heard about the uh, adoption policy and i heard about children under eight or at eight not being able to get baptized and i heard about the church's reversal of that and all of these things the proposition eight stuff was a big thorn in my side when uh, when that happened people saying are you still mormon um but i started perusing the internet and and found books 
about um, gay active members in the church and started hearing talks at general conference and elsewhere about how important it was to make them welcome. And so I started feeling this, this pull back to church. And ultimately, last summer, I started calling. I looked up online where what ward I was in and who the bishop was, and I started calling. And for about three or four weeks, I couldn't get through. I went straight to voicemail. And I didn't want to just sort of break the news on voicemail. So one day I finally reached him, and I, in about 45 minutes, told him everything. I'm gay. I've done this. I've done that. Um, I have child abuse. I served a mission. I was in everything. And I think he probably was a little taken aback, but he, he was a very good bishop. And uh, he said, well, this is all good news, and I'm glad you called, and I want you to, I want you to come back let's talk again. And so we set up a time to meet at the, uh, this is during the height of COVID. So the wards, the chapels weren't open, but we, we met at the chapel and, um, talked for a couple hours. And he said, well, I want to reassure you that this is the most diverse ward you'll ever experience. And, um, you're not the only one in this ward that has this issue and you're welcome. And the church has changed a lot. And I guess it was just refreshing to sort of hear that. I wasn't necessarily convinced of it, but over the over the last year, I've sort of come to feel that um, through reading book after book after book, um, Charlie Bird's book, Ben Shalati's book, um, is it Tom Christoph? Yeah. yeah. I found all of those, and then ultimately, I uh, happened upon your podcast, and. Um, how refreshing that was to f hear stories about other people like me. Um, and so that's, that's ultimately my story and how I got to sitting here with you. On behalf of all of our listeners, there's a lot of people who just love to jump through the mic right now and give you a big hug. Um, so thank you for vulnerable, honest, courageous story, Kareem. Um, just respect for you and the man you are and the life you're living and the integrity that you show. And it seems like you've always tried to do the right thing your whole life. Um, you know, this is where I pray that I may go where a listener needs me to go to help them. I, I love the way you navigated the child abuse. That's your victim there. I hope our listeners remember that, that you knew all the elements of that garage you can still see the light coming through. You can still smell the gas. And I just recognize that I'm not a therapist, that that's just pure trauma. The fact that you can remember that detail 40 plus years later is a sign of the trauma of that experience. And you I, you probably did the right thing to not tell anybody in some ways, because I'm not sure you, your mom or society would know how to help you in that situation. It may have just added to the trauma, even um, with that father-son situation that your core light of Christ recognized after a while that this wasn't right and I need to get out of this. And it's a credit to you. I think your heavenly father would wrap his arms around your 12-year-old self and just say, you, you did really well in a very difficult situation. And I'm proud of you. And I don't look at what you did. And I'm not going to define you by that. I just recognize that you, after a period of time, recognize that that wasn't right. 
and got out of that situation. And I think he would be loving and compassionate and understanding. And your older self is to your younger self. You could have a conversation right now with your 12-year-old self about that situation oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that you wish you could have had at 12, but you had no you had no way to process that. Right. Talk to 12-year-olds right now that are in or, or have been in that kind of a situation. What would you say to your 12-year-old self? If I'm getting the right year right in that father-son that, situation. That, that was when it that was when it ended um, at its peak. Um, that's really hard. Because I don't know that I would believe what I if at, if I were twelve again. <laughs> I don't know that I would believe what somebody at fifty would be telling me um, that it's not your fault that you didn't do this to yourself. Um, there's this debate on whether or not um, child abuse makes you gay, and I know now that that's not the case and i have recollections of being gay as early as four before anything happened but i don't know that you could convince a 12 year old who feels like this happened because i did something wrong or because of the way i look or because of the way i talk or act um life is hard and sometimes it just has to play out um, but I would want that 12-year-old to know that he he is a child of God. He is loved. He is not to blame. And um, that it'll be okay. That you can you can work through. You're going to experience feelings and doubts and, and, and anxieties, but you can get through all of those things. I think that's great. And I think just a lot of people don't know where to turn with experiences like that and the shame and the self-loathing. And the if you don't have any place to turn that's healthy, the narrative you can create in your mind can be really unhealthy. And I just think it's a credit you somehow got on with your life. Um, I recognize you don't have a father in your life. You have a stepfather in your life. You have a mother and a grandmother. Um, you don't have a faith community. You don't have trusted really adults in your life where you can kind of open up about the stuff. And I think it's really remarkable the way you've just moved forward in your life. Um, um, that reminds me of something. I love the military high school you went to and you just got busy and you, and it put you in an environment where you could learn things about yourself and some of your skills and gifts and, and kind of thrived in that period of time, which is probably really healthy for you. And that led to this great career in the military and joining the church. And my friends that have gone to Colorado Springs say that first year is brutal. Um, a few kids in our neighborhood have done that. So, but yeah. yeah, what else just came to your mind? Yeah, I remember, um, and and again, I don't know if, how it's different growing up in the church, but I, I think about the experience of, of my life. I was, we were Easter Christmas Christians um, when we lived in South Carolina. And Easter morning, my mom would call up and say, get up, we got to go to church. And we'd do it for Christmas as well. And I remember one time, I was probably about 13 years old, and the power had gone out and we had overslept. So she's like rushing us. And she calls us downstairs to get breakfast, and I had an erection. I guess it's pretty common with 13-year-old boys. And I came downstairs in my pajamas, and my mom saw that, and she... I don't think she meant anything by it, but she's like, what's that? But that set in my mind. Shame. Shame. 
And I wore a Speedo, a swimming Speedo underneath my underwear for the rest of the time. I was from probably 13 until I went to college. When I was home from military high school, I put the Speedo back on because I was never going to ever have that happen again. And it's little things like that that I, I really... I love my mom. She was a great lady. And I just don't know that she had the faculties or the, the, the learning to know how to respond or what to do. We never, ever once in my lifetime talked about the birds and the bees or, um, and I just sort of, you know, she struggled as a single mom. And then when she remarried at 10, I was like, her life is great now. And I just want it to be great for her. And I don't want to be a burden on her. So that sort of, is what probably part of why I kept everything a secret. But it was interesting because my coming out story to my mom, I sort of ultimately came out to myself at 33. And I had a close relationship with my mom at this point. And uh, I was living in Baltimore City. And one Sunday morning, she calls and says, where do you live? We're at the Inner Harbor. And I'm living in an apartment nine blocks north of the Inner Harbor. She lives at, in Florida at this point. And I was like, what do you mean you're at the Inner Harbor? And she said, we were visiting my friend in Pennsylvania, and we decided to come down here and surprise you because they had not seen where I'd moved into Baltimore. And I lied to my mom and said I was on a work trip in San Diego. <laughs> and I was devastated because I'd never lied to my mom. And she was like, oh, we're so sorry. We didn't plan this better, but uh, we'll do it again next time. So they flew home from Baltimore. And I said it in my mind, I had to come out to my mom. I was never going to put myself in that position again. But I didn't want to fly her from Florida to South or to Baltimore just to tell her I was gay. So I had to contrive this story of why she should come up. And ultimately in Baltimore, they have um, the first Tuesday of December every year, they do this tour of all these homes that brownstone homes that are being renovated. And she was big into home renovation stuff. So I said, fly up for that. And they have a, a Washington monument that they light up and have a fireworks display. So I said, you're going to come up for that and visit. And so that was the premise of getting her there. And after the the monument lighting, we went to dinner at a local restaurant. And as we were walking back to my apartment, we walked by a gay bar. And I remember she looked in there and she said, why are there no girls in that bar? And I said, oh, that's a local gay bar. And she said, oh, okay. So we got back to my apartment and went to sleep. And the next morning we're sitting there uh, together. And that's when I came out to her. And I remember the first thing out of her mouth was, aren't you afraid of getting HIV? And I look back and I think, was that the appropriate thing for a mother to say to her 33-year-old son uh, who just sort of confessed this to her? And it probably wasn't, and it probably did, uh, didn't help me at all, but God bless her. And uh, I told her, no, no more than you probably should be. Um, but she came to love me, and um, I remember she said to me, what can I tell people? And I said, well, it's been a long process for me to get to where I'm at. And you probably are going to have to go through a process to deal with this. And one of her best friends is a, a retired nurse and she has a, a lesbian daughter. So I said, if you need to talk to Pat, feel free to talk to Pat. You want to talk to family, you do whatever you need to. But remember that 
depending on who you talk to, there may be a positive or negative response. And that may affect how then I respond to those people. And so I, I drove her to the airport the next day and it was snowing when she left. So I, as soon as work was done, I called her to see if she had gotten in all right. And she answers the phone and she says, Paul, my stepfather wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh gosh, what's about to happen? And um, I never grew up with Paul. He was a stepfather that she married um, in 2002. So um, he says, your mother told me what you discussed with her while she was visiting. And I want you to know that you are always welcome in our house and you can bring anyone that you ever want to bring into our house. And I started boohooing. I'm driving home boohooing. And uh, yeah, Paul is a great guy. And he's this that father that I have now still that um, I go and visit. So your mother's passed away. She passed your away. Biological she, father's never been in your life. Yeah, I haven't seen him since I so was So you seven. do have this guy, Paul. Yeah. And it was an interesting coincidence that his daughter in college joined the church. And my mom had a son that in college joined the church. And He's actually going to be moving out here uh, to Draper here in the next few months. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, thanks for just being honest and vulnerable. We sometimes talk about masturbation on this podcast, listeners, and both um, Kareem and I, you know, teach that's a sin, but I think it's okay to talk about that. It sort of de-shames that that is part of people's lives and how to navigate that. I think so I appreciate being open that that's even a part of your journey and how you handled that. I think there's a lot of people that quite don't know how to, as a singles word bishop, I just, it was a range of feelings about how serious or unserious that sin was. And I recognized not talking about it was adding to the burden of a lot of people that just didn't know quite where that, that sin stood with the church. And I think the church needs to maybe, um, I, you may have heard this on prior podcasts. I don't get too sidetracked on this topic, but I finally told the wise says on a one to 10 scale with 10 being the worst sexual sin. This is about a two, um, but sometimes the shame and guilt is about a nine or 10. And that's where Satan really wins is he just feels you're so, he separates you from God. If you mess up in this area. Now you may not feel good with me saying it a two, you may think it's higher or lower. And I'm not lowering it in the point to invite more people to mess up, but just put it in the context of, sort of what I personally believe that is, is a two or a three and and keep your shame and guilt associated with a two or three, but know that God loves you and he will continue to love you as you work through that. Are you, any thoughts on that? Are you okay with that? Oh, I absolutely agree with that. I think particularly as a convert, I didn't grow up in the church, so I don't <laughs> know how the church teaches its youth about this. And I had no one that taught anything to me about this, except that if I did it, I was going to have to wear a white glove. And so uh, when it happened, it was this ginormous monster in the closet, you know, and, and I, you couldn't let it out. Um, and so, again, it's it's perspective. When you realize the number of people that experience that, and and get through it, you realize, oh, it's not quite the monster that I thought it was. Um, you know, it's still sin. Um, and I don't know that any sin is better than another sin. I like but, I really like what you said. That's good. But I think that um as with all sin, we have the opportunity to repent and try to get better. And and the thing I've learned most, especially as coming back to church, is that repentance is not punishment. I think 
I hope that the message in every every church setting is that repentance is healing, and that um, it is it is through that act of repentance and and being able to talk openly and not have secrets that people can heal. Um, talk, talk about this time out of the church. Were you listening to general conference? Were you following specific speakers? Were you, you know, it's sort of like, take us, it's helping us that are active in the church get in the mind of somebody that appears to be 100% out of the church and 100% disconnected from the church. Yeah. I, I never disconnected from the church and I was desperately afraid of getting excommunicated because I didn't want to not be in the church. I loved the church, always have. Um, I remember when I first joined the church, there were talks at the pulpit, talks at general conference that were openly hostile to the LGBT community. Um, but over the years, as I stepped away, I didn't, I missed the, I missed church. I certainly missed fellowship. Um, and I missed the feeling of the spirit. I missed partaking the sacrament. And so oftentimes I found myself sort of subtly stepping back in. And how did that happen for me? I would tune into general conference. I would listen to it over the internet, or I would read the, I would order that specific uh, edition of the Ensign. Um, I remember oftentimes, uh, I remember on my mission, uh, there were, there was this guy, I think Todd Christofferson, um, not the, or it was Todd Christiansen, I think he did, um, sort of motivational LDS fireside talks and all the missionaries had these tapes floating around in the mission. And I re just remember the spirit that was felt when you're just sort of listening to someone tell stories and have, and so I sort of started to look for those and and um finding certain speakers there were there were let me just be honest there were general authorities that scared me um Boyd K Packer was an general authority that scared me um <laughs> Elder Oaks has has uh, on occasion scared me um and but there's those other ones that you just sort of know and every talk at conference sort of feels like it's directed at you and it pierces you to the soul and so i certainly uh would drift towards in and out of general conference talks um looking for two things looking for those that sort of made me feel welcome and made me feel loved and then looking for where are they saying that i'm awful and that i'm an abomination and that i can't i won't be exalted and and so I sort of was always, it was a, a push and pull um, with me. And uh, yeah, th throughout that, that period that I was away, I think um, the thing that kept me coming back was that moment of revelation in the 2001-2 timeframe where I just sort of got this confirmation that it's going to be okay. You are who you are and, and you're who you're supposed to be. And I, Heavenly Father, love you. Um, and so that sort of has always, it, I can't escape it. And, um, so when I would hear that talk at conference that was hostile, frankly, um, I was like, okay, that is, that is the human, uh, that we all experience. Um, 
So. Um, thank you for it. Just helpful for me and for our listeners to, you know, just realize that you're doing the best to navigate being gay and having a testimony of the church and a testimony, a great relationship with your heavenly father that in 2001 told you that who you are is who he meant you to be, if I'm using the right words, and he's okay with that and you should be okay with that. And that's a great personal revelation. That's something I've come to believe as I've met with so many LGBTQ people that I don't think Heavenly Father makes mistakes. I don't think he's capable of being surprised. doesn't change our doctrine, doesn't change our teachings, but it puts everybody sort of on the same moral footing. Right. Everybody looks in the mirror and thinks they're created as they're supposed to be. And I think one of Satan's greatest tools to cause us to look in the mirror and think that part of us is unworthy of God's love. And so then we pull away. And you had enough... I think it probably came from your pre-mortal life, just your mature spirit, enough ability to navigate that with a church at times that didn't know how to navigate that, to push through that. It's interesting to me that you're worried about being excommunicated, and so that was one of the reasons you'd, you didn't want to be excommunicated. And so I, I just throw that out there for any local leaders, that to me excommunication is is something when someone wants to fully return, if it's something that's a positive part of the process to help them fully return and their goal is to fully return, have a temple recommend and fully participate. If we don't technically excommunicate people, it's called membership withdrawal. But if they go through the membership council, I think is the word. And I think if that's done, there's some situations where it's required, but you being in a same sex relationship, it's not required to do a membership council. So I, I hope that we learn and, and you, as you're tuning into conference and staying a little connected to the church, there was a clear message that if you want to come back to the church, we're not going to excommunicate you, um, that we're going to welcome you. And, if, and, and there may be some church discipline involved in the process if you want to return to full activity. But if, but if you just want to come to church, even with your partner, that we're just going to welcome you. And kind of let you self-determine what what direction you want to go without holding that over your head. That's just a personal preference, listeners. Um, I know some listeners are perhaps aware of same-sex couples that are attending church that are worried that that's going to result in them being excommunicated. And why there's other couples that choose not to attend church like you in some ways were because you didn't want to be excommunicated. Um Talk, I love what your bishop said. So here you're two hours in a COVID church, just the two of you. And maybe this was from the phone call. And he said, if I remember correctly, Kareem, he said, after you just unloaded all this stuff, and he's probably never had a conversation like this before, he says, it's all good. Yeah. I mean, I just want to be in your shoes as you're for the first time in 20 years unload. You remember you unloading to a priesthood leader about your life and the courage it took to do that and how vulnerable it is to talk about all this stuff. I've been living the gay lifestyle for 10 plus years. Right. And just all the things he could have said there and how what he said could have set you in so many different directions. Relive that moment for us just one more time. Yeah, it It's interesting because I think the Lord works in mysterious ways. How I found myself in, in a Baltimore inner city ward, um, which joining the church in, in Colorado and having friends out in Utah and sort of experiencing 
the Mountain West LDS Church. Um, I'll be I'll be frank here. It's it's not very diverse, and from the name of my bishop, Daryl Freeman, I I sort of had a hunch, and then when I actually met him face to face, I was like, wow, I've never seen a African American bishop, and I was a little bit anxious about that because. Um, within the African-American community. Every culture has different Hispanic communities. I mean, lots of different cultures react differently to um, LGBT matters. And so I was a little bit anxious, but we had had this two-hour conversation over the phone and just sort of, I felt the spirit like I hadn't felt it in, frankly, decades. Um, just being able, even just me doing the talking, just getting the words out and to a priesthood leader and saying, um, I want to come back felt so cathartic. And to have him just say, it's all good. And, and I look forward to meeting you and, and we're going to navigate this together and we're going to do it at your pace. And we're going to, um, whatever you need and, and you can teach me. And, and subsequently, he's, he's, I think he's reading your book. He's listened to some of your podcast, um, uh, some of the other books that I've uh, told him I read. Um, so it, it just was a relief to, you know, you build up the anxiety about sure. what the experience is going to be like. Oh, well, that means we have to go have a disciplinary council or that means you're not going to be able to participate in the sacrament. I mean, I was... I was back for a very brief period of time and I was not participating in sacrament. And he said, you know, you can, you can participate in sacrament. And I don't, I, it, I hadn't asked him, can I, he just sort of recognized that maybe he doesn't think he can and I need to reassure him that he can. And that was, that was very helpful. Um, because again, there's just so much unspoken anxiety and angst about what I, I felt like, okay, can I come back to church and can I participate? And I, I, I remember when I first, when we were talking about my prior experience with the church and sort of the anxiety that it, that had was building with all these callings and, and the thought of, you know, if I'm a Sunday school teacher or, or young men's whatever a scout master if those parents knew they would they would want to kill me I it was just the worst anxiety and I said I'm so I'm not sure that I'm going to be prepared for any callings anytime soon and I love the fact that the bishop was very subtle in how he did it but he's like I have an assignment for you it's not a calling it's an assignment but he was very quick to sort of get me engaged after I came back. And it was through that engagement that I started feeling, okay, there's a place for me. They want me. Uh, I'm contributing. Members are thankful that I'm there and contributing. Um, and <laughs> one thing led to another. Now I have a state calling, three callings in the ward. Um, I get to work with the missionaries. And so he's, he's very, uh, he's, he was very sly, but I think did it with the spirit in, in terms of really sort of getting the arms of the church back around me. Um, doesn't mean that all the anxiety is not there because 
there have been a couple members. I, one of my callings is to, um, as a as a ward family history consultant, specifically to help in the inner inner city. There's a lot of members whose only means of communication with the church is on their smartphone. Um, they're homebound and stuff. So, uh, trying to teach them how do you do family history on the on the family tree app. And so I was teaching with this one member, and in the course of the conversation, uh, I said that I was gay. And she was very receptive and, and thought that, oh, that's great. Um, but every time you, you know, I'm back in the ward now, I'm an active temple recommend holding member, and now I'm the Sunday school teacher. And there's a lesson where I'm now drawn to want to make some correlation to my experiences in life and how it relates to this. And then I think to myself, now that I have to come out again and every, every opportunity to either use my life's experiences to sort of help with the, with the lesson presents this conflict of, okay, how are people going to receive that? Do they want to be taught Sunday school from someone who's LGBT? Um, so that anxiety is still really there, honest. but, um, he has really sort of embraced me and he, you know, periodically I'll get a text message midweek. He's like, how are you doing? So he's checking up on me and, and that's been really great. Uh, I do a scripture study every Monday through Friday with probably about 10 members. Our elders quorum president, uh, started it. And I remember getting on the zoom call once early with him. And he's like, yeah, we got to set you up on a date. And it was one of those things. It's like, there's the anxiety. There's that little panic reaction that makes me want to, okay, I need to step back again because I can't tell him um, that I'm gay. And I told, I shared that with um, the bishop and he's like, anytime you want, you know, you, I'm not going to tell you when to come out and if you have to come out, but if you want to come out in a lesson or if you want to come out from the pulpit, you, you are going to do that at your own pace. And so I've really felt sort of, um, at liberty to take it at my own pace when it feels organic and natural and right to do. There's some really cool ministering principles from Bishop Freeman, if I've got his name right, um, that I just love, um, and really intuitive stuff. Um, I love to me, taking the sacrament is more about looking forward and where you want to go with the church and in your life. it's To me, it's not a penalty for the past. It can be helpful, maybe if you both agree upon it, to not take the sacrament for a period of time if you're kind of involved in that decision. But generally, I like the idea that he invited you to take the sacrament because it's more about your commitment to going forward and making those covenants going forward and just the strength it gives you and the feeling of belonging to take the sacrament. I love that. I love part of your story is your testimony to the church, but need to find a tribe. It's we're part of that's part of who we are as humans. We need a feeling of belonging. Um, President Ballard used that word multiple times in his April talk. I think the brethren are recognizing that there's a lot of people that have a core testimony of a restored church, but our culture doesn't create a feeling of belonging. Sister McConkie gave a quote: "The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't marginalize people." people marginalize people and we need to fix that and you have done some really good job of showing some examples of where that's come into your life perhaps even in that colorado springs ward with that experience um in between wards that became kind of a deal breaker for you 
and you're recognizing that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think you've done a really good job of helping us to look inward and say, how does our culture need to improve so that we create this feeling of belonging that you as a, as a gay Latter-day Saint belong to your ward? It's not just, and that's why like Bishop Freeman said, if you want to come out of the pulpit, I'm fine with that. He's just, he just trusts you and your personal revelation. And he's not creating any shame by, well, you can tell me about this, but don't tell the ward. Um, and sometimes missionaries come out to their mission presence. You know this, and they say, well, you can tell me, but don't tell anybody. It may be protecting them, but it also creates shame. So I love that he said, if you want to talk about this, over the, even over the pulpit, I just trust you to do that. And the, feet, and the feeling of belonging it can create is probably some of your ward members are going to listen to this podcast and hopefully create a better feeling of belonging for you. And I think you'll even do that better for other people because people know you're safe and you can kind of go where they need to go to talk about their life experiences. They might be gay, but they sort of get that you can get complicated stuff right. and sort of validate difficult experiences because you've walked that road. So there's a lot of really cool things happen. We have a son, Elder Jacob Osler, that loved Baltimore on his mission. And he loved the inner city of Baltimore. He just loved when he was assigned to those diverse wards um, in the inner city. And it's just, he just loved the gospel there for some reason. And he loved the way people just accepted each other. And there was just a little different culture that he really thrived with. Um, he said, Dad, you would never believe the places we went to. And he just loved it. So there's something beautiful about where you live and where, and that it, those wards. There's definitely a special spirit there, for sure. Um, we're kind of coming to the end. We're at the hour and 15 minute mark. Is there other things you'd like to share, Kareem, that have come into your mind? I've been active with the church now, um, since returning for just, just under a year now. And I'm, I'm, I love it, but I haven't faced a situation where I have, um, met someone, fallen in love, uh, coming out of a relationship, I'm not ready to fall in love again. Um, but I do have, you know, to, I would be, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't express that there's some anxiety about the future. Um, I have no anxiety whatsoever about leaving the church again. Um, about feeling the ability to communicate with my bishop um, and at least a select uh, group of members that I've uh, become close with. And so that gives me sort of this, this sense of security in my membership, in my being um, fellowship, having, having a little tribe. But I, I, I hope that people recognize that what that means for me. I've experienced for, you know, 15 plus years, allowing myself to feel an embrace um, to, and, and we're not talking about sexual things. We're talking about just connection. Um, it's a little, it's a little sad that I don't know that I, today when I met, I, this morning I met, um, this one elder from my mission and we had lunch and at the end we're sitting at temple square and we embraced and he made it a point to just 
really draw me in and give me a hug. And I, it meant so much to me. Um, I'm, I'm anxious about missing out on those opportunities because how do, where do they, where do they fit in? When do they come and how often do they come? Um, every day you come home and you get to embrace your, your spouse and your children and naturally, organically, uh, if you, if you don't feel good, somebody to pull you in by the shoulder, um, I don't have that. And that's, and I don't know where that's going to, if it's not coming from a partner or, or a, a good friend, then where does it come from? Um, I think the church can do better about about that. We in in Baltimore, we are doing a virtual family home evening now, um, every Monday, and so we are trying to sort of create this family environment. But I think it's easy. I can see how it would be easy to sort of overlook that need for the LGBT members because if they don't express it or say, "Hey, I need." you to occasionally call me and say, how you doing? And I don't need you to have sympathy or pity for me, but I just need you to recognize that that's a, that's a, you know, if you see someone, if you know, someone is autistic or, you know, someone is handicapped, there's sort of these outward appearances that, and, and you accommodate and you, and you try to, to fill in and, and make, make them feel welcome. But this isn't something that you just sort of, you don't walk around with a sign that says I'm gay and I'm still gay. And I still don't have uh, that sort of connection with anyone. So I need to get it from you. And I hope that um, the church gets better at sort of recognizing that. Um, That's really honest. Um, You know, as I've listened to more and more stories, I recognize that what you're doing to fully participate in the church is different than what I'm doing. And, and even if you were straight and single right now, you'd still would have hope and prayers that you find a girlfriend. Um, so we have divorced people or uh, unmarried straight people, and they, that's not easy, but at least their hopes and their prayers line up with the hope of finding a partner. But you're sort of in defensive mode, lockdown mode, to fully participate in the church. You can't fall in love with a guy. Right. And... I think we can learn to develop empathy, not pity. I love you. You don't want to use that word, but just empathy and compassion for the uniquely difficult road you walk and the need that's on us then to create a feeling of belonging for you because you can't do something to somehow fix this. <laughs> and it has to be overt. It can't be passive. And it can't point you to the next life and say, this will all be fixed in the next life. To me, that's a platitude that just sort of makes me feel emotionally safe and not having to sort of understand the difficulty of your situation. I need to sit with you in the pain of your situation. I mean, you know this, Kareem. I'm talking to you, but I'm sharing also with listeners. And just the best thing I've learned I can do is just sit with people when you open up about the difficulty of that and not dismiss it or not point to the next life or not just sit with you in the pain of that. And validate that pain and do anything we can to help you on your road. I, I hope the church, there's no roadmap really for, you know, a gay celibate person on how to do this. There's no support group. There's no manual. There's no even a conference talk saying we're really asking something hard of you. And all the straight members should really rally around our gay members that are trying to make this celibate road work because um, it's a it's a big ask. 
right? I would I would also add that I I have no need now. I, I used to think I needed to find the answer. I used to pray, Heavenly Father, show me how I fit into the plan of salvation. Show me what my future holds. Um, but I stopped, I've, I've stopped asking that question and it's not important to me now. I think there's, I truly believe in the principle of line upon line, line, precept upon precept. Um, I love the fact that our church is a ongoing restoration, that there is, you know, article nine, uh, there is still lots that we are going to learn. Um, and I love the fact that personally I can get revelation, but the church as a whole can get revelation, but I have no expectation or anticipation for that when that revelation is going to come. And so I, I think I have gotten comfortable in this place of ambiguity and, um, I'm not worried about whether I'm going to be married to a woman in the hereafter and have offspring in the hereafter. I'm not worried about what my patriarchal blessing says and how to reconcile those things. Um, I think I look at my patriarchal blessing and I, I look at it as uh, goals and things to aspire to and try to figure out how I fit into it. But it's it's not all the answers that I thought it when I when I joined the church and was told you can get a patriarchal blessing, I was like, that's going to be my roadmap. And I sort of expected and, and thought I needed to make sure that my life for, sort of follows that roadmap. And I and I don't believe that anymore. And I think it's important for me to recognize that if the church comes out 10 years from now and says, okay, gay marriage is recognized. I have no expectation of that. I don't think it will happen, but I'm okay with that. Because whatever is going to happen, I know that we have a loving Heavenly Father that um, has a plan for me. That Christ, his atonement is not just about um, my sins and and payment for my sins. But I think equally as important as that is that no matter what I, however lost I feel, however confused or ambiguous my life is, um, that the Savior has experienced that and and understands exactly how I'm feeling. When when I think nobody gets it, and no, yesterday I was at Deseret Books and I saw, I was looking through the section and there's the little postcard thing of the family proclamation. And in that just split second, that little twinge, uh, I'm like, oh, and I'm like, Savior knows that feeling. Very few other people uh, know that feeling. And so I think that's what that's sort of where I, how I look forward to my future, um, relying on my knowledge and testimony that the Savior gets at me, that Heavenly Father gets me, that their plan is perfect, whether I or we as a church can comprehend or, or have grasped that that future for me. So. That's going to be our concluding segment. It's one of the greatest segments that's been shared on this podcast, Kareem. Um, people are going to play that back a few times. I just, it's a great place to be. To me, that's a place of peace. It's a place where you're focusing on things you can control and 
and not worried about things you can't control, which I think is really key to eliminating stress and anxiety. Um, it's a great, it's a great spiritually, emotionally mature place to be. And I think it allows you just to go forward in your life um, with a really stable outlook on your future that you're kind of in control of your future. And um, you haven't felt that at times in your life with the military and the church, but I think you're just where you're supposed to be. I'm glad you're in the church. We need you. We're better off. This podcast is going to help a lot of people, but I think what you shared in that last segment is just really helpful for all of us and learning to live with the complexities and be at peace with that. So Kareem Lazarus, just like the, just like the guy that was raised from the dead, you, you're not dead, but you have, is it the same spelling? Same spelling. Same spelling. I say looking better than ever. And, um, how can people contact you? They want to contact you. Uh, I'm on Facebook. So we'll just, we'll, in the podcast notes, when I post these on Facebook and go to my Facebook and, and see Kareem there, if you want to connect with Kareem, but thank you for the courage. Sometimes these stories from people that have been on this road for like four decades for you're 50, but you've kind of known this since you were four, really helpful for all of us, especially younger people that are faced with multiple decades and the things that you've shared and the learning and the personal revelation and navigating all of this. It's a great podcast for parents, for local leaders. And um, so thank you. And this is Richard Osler and Kareem Lazarus signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.